This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hey there, welcome to the show. For those jo joining us for the first time, know that this is the year 2023 and you're watching or listening to Dune Talk, the official podcast of DuneNewsNet.com. This is where we cover everything Dune often with a regular crew of experts and other times with special guests for interviews. On this episode, we're excited to speak with the author of A Masterpiece in Disarray, David Lynch's Dune, An Oral History. This brand new book explores in incredible depth production and lasting legacy of the Dune movie that premiered in theaters almost 40 years ago. This is Marcus, your editor at dunenewsnet.com, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Mark and Simon, both longtime fans of that 1984 movie. Hi, Mark here from June Info. Uh, excited to talk to Max about his book. Simon here. Uh, super excited. If you've been listening or watching the show, you know I am one of the few people on this show. Uh, Johnny, that goes out to you. Uh, <laughs> I love the 84 movie. I don't care what anyone says. It's a guilty pleasure, but it's also what inspired me to go to film school. So can't wait to dive in. Oh, bless you. Bless you. Yes. And I'm Max Avery. This is the sound of my voice, which is also my weapon of choice. Yeah. And uh, Max, uh, great to have you on, on the show. So you've worked in film journalism, I think, in one capacity or another uh, since 20, uh, 2005. Um, and uh, people may have seen your work on places like IGN, MTV, uh, Slash Film. Um, so, yeah, welcome to Dune Talk. I uh, wanted to give you the opportunity to uh, share with our viewers and listeners uh, just a little bit more about who you are and what you do when you're not writing a huge 500-page book about Dune. <laughs> oh, well, I, I, I've been writing 500-page books about Dune forever, you know, I, and just churn them out. Um, no, I, uh, I, I, yes, I've been, I've been a movie journalist slash bon vivant for a, a long time uh, in based in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, yeah, I, I've, I've done, I've gotten to do all sorts of fun things in my career. I've done like dozens of set visits to big movies. I've interviewed lots of directors and movie stars and stuff. And yeah, and, like, and after a while, like that, you know, kind of runs its course and then you kind of want to go to the next thing. So yeah, I wanted to, to do a book. Um, I've also recently been branching out into uh, audio commentaries for um, Blu-rays for companies like Kino Lorber and Arrow and um, Via Vision. And yeah, and that's been really fun. I actually just produced my first Blu-ray special feature. So yeah, um, that's it, it, it's been a joy for the, like, the last two or three years to start, in, instead of writing little three or 400 word you know, capsule news pieces about a movie, you know, I'm doing really in-depth, you know, highly researched stuff and getting to, you know, I'm, tr I'm trying to avoid the use of the word deep dive, kind of <laughs> overused, but uh, yeah, it, I, I, I'm, I'm diving deep into, into movie stuff, into movie goop. When I saw the size of the book, I'm like, this is a textbook. It's not <laughs> even a book. It's a full textbook. If any professor out there wants to teach Dune, just the 84 movie, we should use your book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I don't want people to be um, intimidated by it at all. Like, just, you know, if you're listening to this and you're you're sort of on the fence about it, just know, like, 
I did not write the book academically, you know, and, and yeah, I, I really tried to make the book entertaining, but also it's, it's very segmented. So like everything is sort of has sort of subsections on subsections and you can jump around and, you know, really kind of, you know, focus on the stuff, you know, if you, if you think special effects are a snooze, just skip that, you know, if you, if you, if you just want to read about Toto, <laughs> there's plenty of Toto in there. <laughs> um, so yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I don't, I know that um, Mark just wrote a lovely re review for uh, Dune Newsnet and uh, um, you know, he, he, he kind of said a, a similar thing, like that it's uh um yeah like you know that that it, it it has a an accessibility to it even though it's and even though there, there's stuff in there that you might not be interested in you know that it's there for the people who are yeah all bases are covered in the book so any aspect of lynch's dune if you're interested go buy the book highly recommended yeah and max uh, of course since you're a first time uh, guest we want to know your Dune story. What was it that brought you into this universe created by Frank Herbert? Well, my dad was a huge fan. Uh, my dad, Ron, uh, he uh, he read, I think, all the books up through four or five. Um, and uh, yeah, and he really recommended it to me when I was in middle school. And at the same time, I think I taped the... Uh, I, what I didn't, I didn't realize it was the TV version, the Alan Smithy version of the film. I taped that off the Sci-Fi Channel, um, and you know, that so that was my first exposure. And then, like, so I started reading the book and watching the Alan Smithy kind of simultaneously. And uh, it, it, it's interesting to do that because you know, so much of the book is interpreted literally throughout the film, you know, it's very true to the source material, you know, except when it isn't. And, and then, uh, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know until years later that there was a shorter cut that's actually got David Lynch's name on it. And, and I watched that one and I was like, oh, this is so much more uh, entertaining than that, that sort of bastardized TV version. I mean, the TV version has, great stuff in it because you know i think they just cobbled it together from a rough cut or something but like they they had no template they didn't you know there are scenes that are in the wrong order there's you know shots that you know sh shouldn't be there's shots from the end that they put at the beginning just to patch holes and it's just a just a total botch job um and then and then of course watching the spice diver version while I was researching this book like that was like a revelation too because like that's you know that that is my definitely preferred um you know recipe for this movie the spice diver identity great well we, we have a bunch of burning questions for you max uh, so let's go ahead and dive into a masterpiece in this array uh mark since, since starting your site uh doing behind the scenes in the 90s you yourself have done some quite some research into lynch's movie and as mentioned you've written a review uh just before you you kick off your questions for max what was your overall reaction uh yeah absolutely enjoyed the book from from start to finish um there's been a lot of uh unanswered questions for lynch's dune it's been uh solely overlooked um in film history um managed to cobble together various bits of information over the decades from magazines or from cast and crew I've contacted online 
but this is the first time that we've got, I think, pretty definitive version of the story of Lynch's Dune uh, from its inception through to all the way through its filming through to its very rocky reception and its lasting legacy. Uh, so, yeah, I, I can highly recommend the book to especially any fans of Lynch's Dune. But if you're a fan of Lynch, fan of filmmaking or just Dune in general, um, yeah, this will be a perfect stocking stuffer, although you'll need a big stocking. Yeah, no, it's 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 a doorstop, and the yeah, and I, and I I've told this to Mark a few times. It's a little embarrassing, but like while I was writing the book, my my sort of uh, uh, north star was you know will will Mark Bennett read this and learn something he didn't already know? Like that, that was my goal. You, you certainly succeeded on that. The uh, the cast revelation because uh, you, you got the uh, eighty two cast list, uh, you got your hands on that by some witchcraft. Uh, and that alone is was worth the the book, I think. Yeah, and it's you know, and and, and yeah, and, and and what Mark said is is true. Is like it's, you know, it's definitely for Dune fans and for Dune eighty four fans. But it's like it's also it's like you know, even if you knew almost nothing about Lynch's Dune, like it's it is like a very in depth look at the filmmaking process on a huge epic film. And I I don't know if a lot of books have really delved this deep into what it's like to mount such a huge production. I mean, this movie cost, you know, the figures I read are anywhere between 37 million and 55 million in 1984 dollars. So, you know, I think it, it would have been at least a $150 million production. Now I've been reporting on this industry for so long and I've, I've watched the blockbuster movie become increasingly more and more homogenous, more just like bland and inoffensive and four quadrant oriented. And, you know, I look at a movie like David Lynch's Dune and I'm like, wow, how did this get through the system? Like even in its compromised form, it's so strange and wonderful and, <laughs> and exciting and you know, it, it 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 tickles your corneas with its visuals. It's it's a really amazing film. So, was that what it inspired you to to write the book on Lynch's Dune? Did you was it from a filmmaking aspect, or was it that, that you felt there was something missing in the history of Lynch's Dune in particular? Well, the the book had a really weird, windy road, and I I don't think it would have come out as good as it did if it wasn't at a really supportive company like 1984 publishing because my original uh, assignment when I, I pitched it to them and you know and they did my contract or whatever it was supposed to be like 150 pages <laughs> you just and, went over a little bit yeah and uh, and it was supposed to be done in I think seven or eight months what's great is like you know if if I'd been forced to turn in something at seven or eight months it would have been garbage like it would have been you know I think a worthless book um but yeah but that extra you know year and change really made a difference because you know it's like it takes a long time to cultivate um uh, talent you know it's, it's a big ask because it's like they're not contractually obligated to promote this movie anymore <laughs> you know they uh they have they have nothing really to gain, you know, except, you know, the, you know, if they talk to me, it's because they loved David, it's because they cared about the movie, 
and they worked really hard on it and they wanted it to be good. Um, and yeah, and I, and I think it's, it speaks to, you know, it speaks to the movie and the legacy of the movie that so many people were willing to give me their time, you know, but it took time to, you know, it took time to find people. It's like being a detective, you know, you gotta like, oh, you, you can't just, you know, there's no one stop shop for finding, you know, access to people. And some people I had to approach three or four different ways, you know, the, the, the real trick was just like, if, if I didn't get a no, <laughs> then, I, then I, I, I continued to try to, you know, worm my way in as, as genially as possible. Um, but yeah, and, and yeah, and, and of course, by the time, by the time the book was done, uh, it was actually closer to 700 pages. And I didn't know that while I was writing it, because I was writing it in Word. And so Word pages are different from book pages. So like the, 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 the draft I turned in Word was 400 and something pages. But when they, when they, when they, spread it out and laid it out it was like 700 and i was like i was embarrassed <laughs> i was like nobody gonna read a 700 page book i was like what do i think i am james michener after i thought i was done i then took another whatever it was few weeks to just go through and really be you know like a, just as like a scalpel just like slash 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 like anything that reeked of filler I just cut it and the, the book is so much better for it. Um, I think, I think it's a much more entertaining book. It's a much more informative book. Cause it's like everything that was really important to me stayed in there T to me. Like that's the whole point of writing a book like this now. Cause it's like, you know, what is, you know, what is the legacy of this film? You know, what is the footprint that it's left? And it's like, cause it, it has this perception of being this horrible disaster but I mean, in my in going through all these years, you know, the 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 fans and the and their feelings towards the film is just like, oh no, there's a lot of people who love this movie. Like a lot. It's like the Richard Nixon silent majority, you know. <laughs> yeah, we realized that last year when me and Darren that's on the show and uh, Marcus went to a convention in Utah last year. And I was shocked. I mean, I, I've always said I love the 84 movie, but how many people were like, no, I love the 84 movie. And also it wasn't people like our age. We had younger people being like, no, it means, it means a lot to me. Like, so I, I work at Best Buy and I have a name tag that says Mwadid. They let me get away with that. So, and someone was like, oh my God, is that your real name? I'm like, no, my real name's Paul they got it right like totally and they're like so I showed it to my son I showed the 84 movie and her son was like 20 something loved the 84 movie he's like it's insane he's like and nothing against Denis Villeneuve's movie but he's like it was just slower the 84 movie is just like action-packed all the way through and for a movie that's gonna be 40 years old next year it's it's an impressive movie like people talk crap about it all the time because i feel like it's so easy to pick on it but some of the stuff they did and especially when you read your book and you know some of the behind the scenes stuff it's incredible that it just came out just overall yeah and i know simon you were surprised by uh by some of the things you read uh, early in the book 
I was. So uh, Mark kind of hinted at that. The 82 casting, I was like, what? And I tried to like visualize it. I was like, nope. But then I was talking to my fiance about uh, a certain superstar that could have been a, a young Paul Atreides. She's like, he would have been the hot then back in 82. Do you want to talk more about the craziness of the 82 casts? Yeah, I think that the person you're, I'm guessing you're referring to is uh, Mr. Tom Cruise. Yep, Mr. Mission Impossible himself. Yeah, I, I, I it's it's hard to picture uh, a uh, a well-known dyslexic getting through words like Kwisatz Haderach and Lisan Al Gaib. <laughs> audiobook, audiobook, <laughs> audiobook. Yeah, it was probably like fourteen cassettes back then. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yet it's funny, and Everett McGill actually says that Tom did have some difficulty with the language, and um, yeah, and, and Sean Young said like he just kind of wasn't on his game when he did his um, screen test, but I mean, he I think he got very close, um, you know, I think he, it was between him and Val Kilmer, and then Kyle was like the dark horse that came in at the last minute, and you know, usurped it from both of those guys. But, you know, at the time, you know, in 82, you know, Risky Business hadn't come out. Um, uh, All the Right Moves hadn't come out. Um, You know, certainly not Top Gun, and you know, the the Tom Terrific that we know today. You know, he was just another up-and-comer. And, And, yeah, and and I think, uh, you know, he would have been an interesting choice, and it would have been... And, and I, th- I think, honestly, I think Tom was a more interesting actor back then, you know, because pe- people forget, you know, like before he did the Mission Impossibles and and the Top Gun. It's like, you know, if you watch Risky Business, like he's, you know, he's almost like a proto Dustin Hoffman or something like he has like a like a strange energy to him. You know, he's he's not um, he's not just a jock. He's not just like a, you know, a, a pretty boy. He's like he's, he's got some you know, there's, there's a lot of neurosis to the character and risky business. And, um, and of course, and then, and then he went on, you know, he worked with Martin Scorsese on color of money and he worked with Kubrick, you know, I mean, he's, uh, you know, he worked with Sidney Lumet. He's, he's worked with some really amazing directors and, you know, he isn't a, a solid actor. He's a solid actor. So I think that pairing would have been interesting. Um, Val Kilmer, I find him, uh, a tougher pill to swallow just because um i i think you know he he projects that kind of heroic persona and he would have been great as the modib uh, of it all but i don't i don't know if he i see him as you know the the innocent um prince uh of of paul and i don't i don't i don't know if he's got that uh in him i mean uh, maybe at the time, maybe he was he was when he was a little younger, he could have done it. But I mean, like they said, you know, Raffaella says in one of the archive quotes, you know, that they, you know, they tested him like seven times just to try to. They they were trying to like kind of convince themselves that he was he was a good choice for Paul, and um, you know, really strong actor. You know, really, you know, obviously was going to be a movie star, um, but uh, but yeah. But uh, I don't know. I, I I I like Kyle. I think I think Kyle was a great choice for Paul, and you know, and and obviously some of the other um, almost wars 
for the cast are, are are very interesting as well. And you'll you'll get you get all the all the dirt in the book. I mean, of course, now we think of Chalamet as Paul, but Kyle will always be Paul, you know. And if you look at Kyle, he's kind of a hybrid of Tom and Val in in a weird little way. So yeah, and I just love the story also how Kyle got the role and you know being from the Pacific Northwest and talking to lunch about it, it just worked out perfectly. Film history. Max, uh, you, you opened uh, the book uh, rejecting the idea of a director, someone someone you talked to was who was calling the 1984 uh, film uh, campy, right? Uh, so rather, you made the case that the movie should be considered a masterpiece. And while I'm sure that there are very many fans who will agree with you, it feels like it, it is harder to convince general audience of th that. So just going back to the 90s for a moment, um, I was introduced to the Dune books uh, at a really young age, and I was excited to learn, oh, there's a movie about it. Uh, so it was a friend's birthday party. He managed to get it as a rental, and we started playing the VHS uh, cassette. And then let me tell you, well before the Rackus arrival scenes, that room emptied up, and there were there were just two of us sitting transfixed to the TV screen. And I mean, this is completely anecdotal, but it's it's funny how many times I've heard similar stories from completely different different people. Um, and then, of course, there, there's the fact that the movie performed poorly when it released in theaters, as we know. So that brings me to my um, my question. Who was the intended target audience for Lynch's Dune in the first place? What was there a clear vision from the director and or studio regarding whom this movie was for? Were they aligned uh, to it? The short answer is no, they were not aligned. <laughs> I don't think in any way, shape or form. I mean, I think what got the movie the green light was, you know, they saw the incredible worlds that, you know, Lynch and Bob Ringwood and Tony Masters and all those guys were, you know, were building from the ground up and they just said, oh, these could be toys. These could be, you know, bed sheets. These can, you know, this, this, this is, this is clearly the next Star Wars, you know, we're going to do a kind of a hipper, sexier, you know, Star Wars for, for grownups, you know, um, but it's like, therein lies the rub you know like star wars this you know yeah it's star wars for grown-ups you know like grown-ups don't play with toys you know <laughs> and, and grown-ups don't you know, most of them yeah i, th I think uh you know and, and lynch you know and everybody you know i talked to said you know like oh we weren't thinking about what's toyetic or what's merchandise or what's you know kid friendly you know like if they were doing that clearly they wouldn't have had baron harkonnen pulling you know, nipple nipples out of people, and you know, or, or and any of that stuff. I think, uh, yeah. Th I mean, I think Lynch was trying to get away with as much as he could within the boundaries of the PG rating. I think it, it became a PG thirteen because the the PG thirteen rating was invented while the film was in post. He was pushing the envelope of, you know, what he could do within the constraints that he had. And, you know, and and I think, you know, it, 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 Paul M. Salmon talks about how, you know, it was a similar thing with Blade Runner, you know, it's like, you know, they, they, they read on the page, oh, it's Ridley Scott and it's flying cars and it's robots and you now we're going to we're going to we're going to make a, a fortune. But like, you know, then, then, you know, it's like you see the movie that Ridley made. It's like, no, it's not like. This is not for kids. This is not, this is downbeat. This is, you know, and, and it's the same thing with Dune. Like Dune is, is just an incredibly complex world. 
um you know like i think i think the biggest difference between the villeneuve version and the lynch ver version um you know and and this is not to um you know negate anything about villeneuve um it's just you know it was just his marching orders is i think villeneuve was trying to do the most popular you know uh four quadrant uh audience friendly version of dune that he could and i think lynch's mo was to embrace the foreignness of dune and the the strangeness you know everybody reads the book says you know oh it took me like 60 or 70 pages to even understand what was going on you know and yeah and that's that's the feeling he was trying to evoke he's throwing you in media res into this really strange future and you know you have to kind of piece it together as you're going or as you rewatch the film over and over again and you know and that's the beauty of lynch in general you know lynch is all about creating these you know uh these puzzle mosaics that you you know that take many viewings to kind of appreciate all the little details you know and stuff like i remember uh watching the arrow blu-ray and um on one of the commentaries this guy pointed out this thing i was like what and it's like um in the scene where paul as uh, being attacked by the hunter seeker um the hunter seeker comes out from a wood panel on his bed and it comes out from a, a panel that has a, a, a an image of a lion and if you go and look at the uh the emperor's throne room he has these lions next to him and it's like lynch loves that stuff he loves that world building and it's like you know making those connections and yeah i think he was I think it was a great choice to make this movie. It's just they needed to they needed to give him the support that he needed all the way through. You know, once you pull that support, you know, once you start pulling that support and trying to, you know, turn it into something that it it's never going to be, then you wind up with you know something that's kind of you know ple ple pleases nobody. So, but. Uh, but even so, I love the film and I, I, I love what made it into those two hours and 17 minutes. So, uh, uh, Max, uh, you, you had touched on the, the merchandising aspect and like uh, some was appropriate, some uh, wasn't. Uh, Simon is actually was introduced to Dune because of the, the merchandise. So, so he has a question about that. <laughs> I was introduced uh, back in 84, actually. So my when you were talking about how they were marketing it as like Star Wars, the next big thing, my parents uh, back in France had kind of like kind of like a big lots type of store and their wholesaler was like, you should get some of these action figures. They're going to be big. People are going to love them. You know, it's the next Star Wars. And sadly, no one ever bought any figures. But guess who had a bunch of them? I did. That's how I got introduced <laughs> to doing. Yep, this guy. We were talking about the figures, the bed sheets, the coloring book, the infamous coloring book. There was a lot of craziness. Um, I was happy a couple of years ago, I found on Etsy of all places, the read along record. Um, what are some of your favorite, if you have any or had any, what are some of your favorites and some of the I can't believe they made that like, or we're going to go in production with that toy or mm -hmm. any merchandise. 
well, I mean, I think everybody's favorite uh toy from the era has to be the uh um what what John Devore in the book refers to as the uh, ribbed for your pleasure nightmare toy that is the sandworm. <laughs> um, they uh, you, you can't believe that they uh I think Mark is running to go get his uh yeah oh um, yep yep still oh, well, in it's a disappearing sandworm. There, we are. there it is. The silhouette makes it worse. I'm just going to say yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, people, um, if you're not watching the video, cue up the video to this point. Yes. Um, no, it is safe for work. It might not look it, but it is safe for work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like that. Yeah, that it's, it's, it's incredible that that got passed. You know, the people were just like, yeah, the kids are going to love that. Um, and it's uh, yeah, and and I do I do want to mention that um, uh, I bought one of those for um, a photo spread that's in the book uh, where I, I had a, I just had a bunch of merchandise that I, I took a photo of and it's, it's in the book and I bought a worm and uh, I will be uh, this is an announcement for this podcast I will be giving it away at my signing. Uh, at Forbidden Planet in New York uh, on September 16th, 5 to 7 p.m. Um, I think for everybody that comes, I don't want to make everybody wait for two hours. So I'm going to do like whoever comes in the first hour is going to get like a ticket or something. Uh, I haven't figured it out exactly. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give my uh, my worm toy away. It doesn't involve sticking your hand in a box and withstanding pain or anything like that. <laughs> No, uh, no, that that's uh, that's for the special uh, signing at the uh, at, at the Benny Jesseret School that I'm doing the week after. Did you ever collect any of the toys back then, or I? So my thing, obviously, because I'm I'm born in '81, so my big thing was Star Wars, and what's even better than getting the Star Wars toys when they came out was getting them when they were on the remainder bin at uh, KB Toys and Toys R Us and at yard sales and stuff like that. So I, I spent like probably from like whatever, like 86 to 89, just like hunting down as much Star Wars stuff as I could. And I think I may have gotten like Sardukars and Baron Harkonnen and a few other ones that was just mixed in like thinking they might have been like random star wars figures that i didn't have and 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 then i found out oh no they're from another movie that i I had never seen um so uh so yeah i i I think i got a few accidentally but yeah I, i don't i don't really collect uh toys per se um i do i do love uh premium scale statues like from sideshow and places like that i think those are really cool and uh, I, I actually spent a lot of time um, doing unboxings of of stuff like that, um, like toy toys, like figures and stuff. I'm like, if it bends, I don't really, I'm not really into it. But <laughs> I, uh, but no, I, th- I think you know there were lots of cool. There's lots of cool merchandise. I think that the chapter on merchandising is is uh, called um, knife fights on lunchboxes. I think that says everything you need to know about what was uh, very misguided about the idea of, of uh, you know, trying to market, you know, a film like this. You know, that that was like a thing in the 80s, though, is like inappropriate toys, inappropriate children's cartoons. You know, there was like 
there, there were children's toys for Robocop. There were children's toys for Rambo. Like, you know, it was just like anything we could market. We don't care if it's an R-rated movie. We don't care if it's, you know, like if, if they could have marketed like, uh, you know, uh, the fly toys to kids like they they would like david cronenberg the fly like brundle fly transforms you know it's like it, they would have done it well i'll tell you one thing if they ever make a cronenberg toy collection i'm getting the james wood video drone point out the gun out of his chest yeah um but yeah, yeah. A, a stretchy tv accessory exactly each sold separately but yeah the <laughs> 80s were crazy for toys like ramble toys come on guys Robocop toys. <laughs> I spit on your grave toys. Uh, so, Max, you interviewed dozens and dozens of people uh, in the book. Was there any particular person, uh, apart from the person at the end, which we'll get to later, I'm sure. Uh, but The Wizard of the, Oz, uh, you mean? <laughs> yep. Uh, was there anybody who was a really surprising get for you or some revelation from them that you were really surprised to hear well i mean i obviously like every person i got was a shock um you know like you know, so, some of them were easier than others to get and um you know once i got you know david and kyle you know like it, it really like snowballed and i think it it, it 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 was exponential how many people i was getting towards the end like you know if you, if you saw a chart it would be like one person every three months or something and then by the end it was like 12 people in, in a week or something. it was like and then um yeah like but uh and in every one of those interviews you know i did so much prep so much research um but i think um you know uh a really emotional one um for me was um alicia witt because i talked to her I think it was like two months after her parents uh, tragically died in um, this really awful um, thing that just their, their house was, wasn't heated adequately for the winter and they both just, uh, you know, froze and it's it just an awful, awful thing. And I, I, I came into that interview with a lot of trepidation because I knew that because, you know, her, her parents were with her throughout the Dune experience and, you know, and uh, that, that a lot of her memories would be inextricably tied to them. And I, I, you know, I didn't want to, you know, open up any wounds or make her, you know, feel sad or anything. So, you know, like I went into that being like, you know, like, is there anything that's like, you know, I, I'm very sorry about, you know, what just happened. Like, is there anything that's like a no go or that like, you just don't want to talk. And she was just, she was just like, no, like, let's, let's just talk. And, you know, and, and and she spoke so fondly of her, of her mom and dad, and you know, and had these great, you know, it was all positive, very, you know, warm, wonderful stories from her, and yeah, that was that was a great one, and um, yeah, what did you think of her, her interview in the book? Uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I I think she probably had a different perspective than most of the people because she was what seven at the time of filming. So for her, it was a, a massive playground rather than work. Uh, some of my favorite interviews or interviewees were the uh, presidents of Universal Studios. How did you manage to get them to talk about you? <laughs> you know what? It, it kind of shocks me after my experience on this book. It shocks me that more books like this don't talk to executives. 
because you know the, there's this we're we're sort of trained to see the director as like the David and the executives as the Goliath and you know but it's like you know the, the executives are the ones that are actually saying yes let's make this movie for this this reason because this this person because we believe in you know this this story or whatever and you know uh, uh you know Tom Mount and Frank Price were both uh you know really smart really wonderful to talk to very you know very, you know gave me a lot of time gave me a lot of you know honesty I thought about um you know their perspectives uh, you know Frank came into it late and Tom was there I think you know more on the earlier side and so they they kind of complement each other very well um and uh yeah and I think you know and Tom obviously really believed in David like he thought David could direct Fast Times at Richmond High so <laughs> which is you know in hindsight is is like what but um yeah and I and I think uh yeah like like to get to to get to talk to those guys and get like just the you know it's been 40 years you know they're not stepping on any toes you know and it's just like yeah they were they were really honest about you know what happened and you know and how it all kind of fell apart and um you know like they when you hear them talk about it you know because like i think the narrative has been like that it was dino that dino was the bad guy and 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 you know when you when you read what what actually happened you know it's a lot more nuanced than that right mark uh generally in the discussions of lynch's june it's like you know lynch was undercut by de Laurentiis's, and some of that blame is passed on to the studio and you sometimes get interviews from Raffaella or dino uh but the studios have always been this black hole of blame that every all all the bad things are, are pushed up the hill and it's great to actually get some perspective and some insight on that side of the fence from the production, both yeah. from their experience with Dino as a person <laughs> and uh, uh, from uh, the Dune project. It would take a long time just to explain kind of, you know, what what happened. And, and that's why there's a book. But like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, go buy the book. <laughs> yeah, go buy the book. But like, yeah, it. it you know, it, it it's a lot more complicated than you know. I think I think everybody, everybody respected David. And, you know, wanted to do right by him. Uh, you know, but at a certain point, you know, the movie just. I think I think the movie overwhelmed everybody, and uh, yeah, I think I think it was Richard Malzahn, the effects guy, said, you know, it's a movie that had a huge budget. But what it really needed was unlimited budget. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I, and yeah, and obviously, you know, and then stuff got shortchanged, you know, because like you know they spent so much up front on sets and actors and all that stuff, and then the you know the when, when they hit the effects, it's like oh we're in trouble. But um, yeah, and you know the effect the effects section i worked very hard on that i was like i really wanted to know you know what happened you know uh, between john dykstra and Raffaella and um and yeah and you, and you kind of you get a, i think you get a really good idea 
you know, between him and Barry Nolan, uh, you know, I think I think there's a lot of truth in between the lines of both of those guys. You know, I think, uh, yeah, like like Apogee. There's no question that they would have turned in better effects. There's just no question. But so, so just know, a bit of context for anyone not familiar. Yeah. Um, originally, Apogee was meant to do the special effects for David Lynch's Dune. And there was some fallout or disagreement. Uh, go read the book. Um, and Apogee left, leaving Raphael De Laurentiis with no visual effects crew to do this visual effects movie. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, uh, the, uh, the 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 foreground miniatures that were done by um, Emilio uh, Emilio, yeah, em Emilio's work was done. Um, during production when they still had dough and uh and, and it was all in camera there were no opticals involved and so that those shots are the best effect shots in the film still because they have yeah. they haven't dated at all um you know like uh in a couple of them you can tell they're little tiny puppet people <laughs> but like for the yeah. most part they, they you're just like wow like this is so integrated this is so uh and you know all this the ships with all the vast armies in front of them like it's it's, it's just amazing stuff yeah the uh it, for for people who don't know the some of the miniatures were hung directly in front of the camera so the camera is shooting through the miniature and then there'd be a little doorway cut out or a hole and you'd then see the live action people possibly hundreds of feet away, uh, but they're in scale to lots of little tiny figures on the model. And so it doesn't need to go off to be optically composited or printed or special effects or anything. What you're seeing through the lens is what, you're, what you see on the, on the silver screen when it's projected. Absolutely incredible work. If, if you look at the book, like you can see like, you know, some of those quote unquote miniatures were still huge. Yes. <laughs> and 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 supposedly were just like kind of left dangling on the on the, on the, on the Itcher Busco Studios when they were done with them. They're just like getting rained on and stuff. It's it's really fun to talk to to a lot of these people, you know. And I mean like I I I have, you know, favorites, obviously like Bob Ringwood, I think, is very open and very honest. <laughs> um and uh, i was grateful for that and he was you know and he does not do many interviews and he, you know and he had a, a bad experience on the film and he still harbors a lot of resentment and you know which he says <laughs> in the yeah. interview yeah, his personality came through on those uh oral interviews uh very clearly i think yeah one of the most distinct voices among the interviews and not like mean like not like you know nasty or catty about anything just like very blunt and very honest and uh yeah and he, he couldn't have been nicer to me i was very very happy to meet bob the the only person i i did a, a, a an in, in real life interview for this book was bill sinkevich the guy nice. who uh, the guy the guy who drew the uh marvel yep. dune adaptation in 1984 yeah, and speaking of the the oral histories, I, I think that's such an enjoyable format. I've used it as as well about like getting all the interviews and like putting them together into, into one narrative. I, I felt it really made 
made the book uh, flow and you know you, you you get all the different perspectives at, at the right time so, so I, I enjoyed that aspect you know the difference between the book at eight months and the book at two years is like that's a big difference like it shifted to oral history more than a year into the writing process like because you know when I only had seven or eight interviews they were just going to be dropped into the book you know and then when I realized I had you know enough to do an oral history it was like a game changer yeah th thinking back uh, like uh, to my experience with the film at a young age I really didn't give much thought to differences between uh, Lynch's films and Herbert's uh, novels uh, but you know I, as I've read the books more and more often and I've watched your adaptation including the 2021 uh, movie I'm increasingly cognizant of you know the the additions and like some of the the changes uh, but like I think for me it's not like some of the visual things like I don't know, like the weird modules or things for, for me I think the biggest um, thing is the the overall theme of the movie um, that that brings my one of my burning questions is, is we know that Herbert was involved in in the creation of uh, Lynch's uh, Dune uh, so I'm really curious knowing that Herbert's key theme is you know talking about the danger of charismatic leaders you know and making Dune more as a, a warning what what happens if you know, you, you give this this person too much power and like how it can corrupt them. But that really didn't make it into Lynch's uh, film. Like, what what are your thoughts? Do you have any theories on that? I'm not sure if that was an edict from the De Laurentiis or if that was Lynch just not being interested in that kind of nuance or shade of gray to the character. Um, I know that he shot, uh, I've seen some deleted scenes of Paul having like a nightmare and being like, turning them into killing machines, my terrible purpose, you know, and uh, yeah, that's not, that's not, that didn't even make it into the Spice Diver edit. And um, yeah, that, but so he shot that. And I think uh, his, you know, if you read some of the different endings, that were in some of the different drafts of the scripts, like they vary very wi wildly about what he's trying to kind of say with the film, like what's his ultimate kind of thesis for the film. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that idea of Paul, you know, causing more trouble than, you know, than he does helping <laughs> I think I think you know maybe that would have carried into the sequel was telling me the other day like you know there, there's a part in one of the books um where Paul is is like do you remember Adolf Hitler do you ever heard of him like they got so mad at him just for killing six million people like, I've killed billions of people <laughs> it's like, yeah like you know Paul's you know Paul's a monster and uh you know, in, in the books, you know, and, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a reluctant monster. And uh, I think Denis Villeneuve is obviously leaning way more into that. Uh, I don't know if he's going to carry through. We'll see. But, you know, I think um, maybe in 1984, that might not have flown. Um, it's also, I mean, you know, if you're going to do this as a franchise, that's kind of interesting, you know, to set up Paul, as, you know, really set it up as a triumphant ending and then to, you know, segue into a sequel where you see like, oh, like, you know, things are not 
kind of going as swimmingly as as Princess Irulan says they are in the in the voiceover at the end. She's just like, and everything was great after that. Bye. <laughs> and they lived happily awesome. ever after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, I I mean I think uh, you know part it's partly because you know, it's not that I didn't have the opportunity to ask people about that. It's just some people don't remember or they conveniently don't remember. <laughs> you know, like uh, I know Ra Raffaello is like, you know, did it rain at the end of the movie? And I, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it rains at the end of the movie. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and you know, it's, I think, uh, you know, but, but that whole uh, idea of treating Paul as a genuine messiah um, and treating the film as a kind of a spiritual journey to enlightenment, to fulfilling, you know, uh, all, you know, all your innermost abilities, you know, that speaks much more to David Lynch's belief system and, you know, the transcendental meditation and all that kind of stuff, which we, you know, we, we get into a lot, especially towards the end of the book. Yeah, that, that, that was interesting hearing that interview at, right at the end with with David Lynch, and yeah, he he, he was really graceful. I, I liked how you know he he talked about how he was uh, grateful for all the people that he had, he had worked with and how all of them had, had done done such a great great job. And and he talked about the transcendental meditation and how that got him through a really rough time of, of filming the, the movie. Um, so how 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 exactly do do you think his beliefs got reflected into into the final film? Well, I mean, I mean, it, you know, it's. Uh... I think towards the end, I, I actually used two kind of opposing quotes, you know, do the right thing style. <laughs> I have uh, Frank Herbert, you know, basically saying, you know, uh, you know, it's a, it's a book about, you know, you know, politics and you know, the politics of power and you know, power corrupting and, you know, and then David Lynch is like, oh, it's like I said about a spiritual journey and awakening and all this stuff. It's like very different perspectives on the same material and it, it's so interesting that the film is so true to the book except for like the main theme of the book <laughs> and, and uh i mean like, like i don't know how you do uh an uh, an adaptation this pure and also this divergent um it's kind of a hat trick almost and yeah but like you know like you know yeah david lynch you know, like he was very, uh, he, you know, very um, devoted to uh, the Maharishi and transcendental meditation, you know, not to, you know, not to crap on that. Like, like, you know, it's, that's his beliefs. I, I'm just, you know, I'm just saying like, you know, he clearly, uh, you know, believes in charismatic leaders and Herbert you know clearly doesn't and you know yeah and then and 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 i mean like you know and then that gets into like the tricky thing about like you know what what are the politics of frank herbert what are the politics of david lynch and i mean like they're murky they're really murky both of them <laughs> um i mean like frank herbert's you know i think i think you know frank herbert uh supported reagan lynch supported reagan also but like lynch is so like kind of naive you know, almost like childlike you know apolitical you know i think he just i think he just bought into the i think he bought into the 
image that Reagan projected. But like, you know, yeah, yeah, like Lynch is not a consistent conservative at all. I think a lot of conservatives try to, you know, use the fact that he voted for Reagan as like, you know, claiming him kind of. But like, no, he's 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 voted for Democrats, he's voted for libertarians, he's voted for the Transcendental Meditation Party. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, yeah, he's he's I would call him much more of a left-leaning libertarian in his politics. Um but I don't think any of that is I don't think any of the those kinds of politics are really reflected in in the film. I think that the film is much more just kind of uh about um you know Shakespearean intrigue and you know uh uh you know balance of power and the spiritual journey of Paul. I think that's what um really interested um David, you know, much more than you know, doing kind of, you know, the Luke Skywalker uh, thing for Return of the Jedi, which he was offered. You know, I think I think this was much more up his alley. Max, uh, were there any June myths that you went into this book wanting to bust? Or were there any myths that actually turned out to be true? A, a lot of things turned out to be true. And, and a lot of things turned out to have a lot more nuance, I think, than as we discussed earlier, but um, what's, what's something I really, I mean, I really wanted to um, get to the bottom of, um, you know, the whole apogee thing, like the apogee thing was really like, I, I worked a long time to try to get John and, you know, John was very cool to talk to me and, you know, and yeah, and I think, uh, you know, like that, the, there's, it's still not completely clear what happened there, you know. I mean, like, you know, yeah. I've seen now some some memos from the time. You know, it's it, it gets it gets confusing. I mean, I th I think uh, what it really comes down to is, is like I think they had um, a lot of expectations for what they wanted to get on the screen, and the dollar amounts maybe weren't adding up you know and i think that that was a frustration for everybody um and then in terms of uh i mean i was really fascinated to learn about um sid scheinberg's involvement in post-production of uh, that he was really um the one who was um sid scheinberg being the the head of uh the chairman of mca at the time and he was really the one who was involved in, uh, uh, you know, getting all scissor hands with the movie, <laughs> and, uh, and and you know, and that was his mo, um, Sid Sheinberg. You know, like I mean, like he's he's well known for shepherding Steven Spielberg's career and for you know, uh, you know, having a lot of hits for the company, but he also uh, had a very bad reputation for, you know. Uh, Greenlighting movies, you know, from, you know, like really good directors like Terry Gilliam, Ridley Scott. And then, you know, <laughs> when they turn in the film, you know, and it's not, you know, the the, the kind of movie that's going to make its budget back, um, you know, then, you know, rather than just accept it for what it is, you know, Sid was the kind of guy who thought he could, you know, uh, make lemons out of lemon, you know, you know, make, make, a, make lemonade out of lemons. He was really making lemons out of lemonade, you know, 
so yeah he he got very chop happy with legend ridley scott's movie yeah. and he tried to do the same thing to terry gilliam's brazil and that, and that movie and then terry kind of went, went around him and uh you know made him look like a like an idiot you know david did two very different movies for his first two movies uh eraserhead which is very strange very abstract very you know surreal you know nightmare vision and then the elephant man which is you know uh has some of those elements but is much more uplifting more positive more uh mainstream movie uh mainstream biopic and i think people saw those two things and just thought they could read whatever they wanted into the tea leaves and you know <laughs> and then you know it's, it's like it's only in hindsight when you see the rest of his filmography that you're like oh no like that's that's not that's not david um, you know, yeah, David can't do Fast Times at Ridgemont High. David can't do uh, Star Wars. Um, yeah, nor, nor nor would you want him to. 16 years after Dave Lynch's Dune came out in theaters, we got the sci-fi miniseries, uh, considered to be faithful to the books, yet suffered from really poor production values. And now we have Villeneuve's uh, two-part adaptation that has seen a financial and critical success. Uh, thinking back to Lynch's version, which element of the movie do you feel really stands the test of time and is least likely to be surpassed by these or future adaptations? Well, I, th I think everybody says this, but the look of the film, and I mean that in every every capacity, just, you know, the, the production design, the costumes, you know, the uh, and, and even to the way the story is told in the very kind of nonlinear um, way that, uh, you know, Lynch weaves an already complicated story. You know, he, he, make, he makes it, instead of making it uh, clearer, he makes it more complicated, more visually um, complex and, yeah, and, and more dreamy. And, yeah, I, th I think that that's unsurpassed. You can't do better than that in terms of visualizing the what's on the page um yeah like I've, I've heard so many people say that like they wish that like somebody else would remake dune but keep everything the way it looked <laughs> in lynch's version and uh yeah and, and, and a lot of people have, have even said that like you know clearly some of you know what lynch visualized you know leaked into the villeneuve films you know um I, I mean, I I find I personally find the the Villeneuve films a little um, a, a little uh, drab, a little one note in turn in visually. I think everything is kind of, you know, these these Ansel Adams compositions, you know, these these wide compositions and these brutalist, you know, backgrounds and yeah, like I, I really love the way that Lynch made made all four worlds that are in the film distinct to the point where you know whether you're on arrakis or you're on caladan like you know where you are instantly and yeah like that that is that is the real you, you could frame any of these images from the movie in a, in a, and put them in a museum like they're they're beautiful uh, max it's uh been a blast having you on dune talk and getting uh, these new insights into lynch's dune uh, before we close out, uh, where can people find out about 
more about you and more about uh, the book. And are there any other upcoming projects you'd like people to know about? Sure. So, I mean, I am on the um, the the uh, social media venue, formerly known as Prince. That's what I'm referred to as. Um, I think you know the one I'm talking about. I'm on there. Uh, it's just my name. And then I'm on Instagram, Max Avery one. And my Instagram is entirely devoted to the book. There's nothing else but the book stuff. And yeah, so if you want, you know, lots of fun quotes and details and, you know, or you want to know about upcoming events relating to it or like when, when reviews come out or when excerpts come out, um, yeah, like go to the Instagram. And uh, yeah, like I, I have... A, a number of audio commentaries coming out in the coming months. Um, I just did for a company called Via Vision. I did the Prophecy Trilogy from the '90s. I don't know if you remember that with Christopher Walken as a murderous angel. <laughs> and uh, I did um, for Arrow. I did uh, Michael Mann's Black Hat, another uh, uh, very flawed. Uh, movie from a visionary director. I did an audio commentary on that, and that's coming out, I believe, in November. It's been delayed uh, a few times, uh, but they, they they delayed it to add the director's cut. So if you like Michael Mann, um, I think there's probably some some Michael Mann and David Lynch overlap. Um, yeah, David Lynch actually almost directed Manhunter um, uh, instead of Dune. I think I think he picked Dune over Red Dragon. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that yeah, that's all that's all good stuff. And then we've got a lot more fun things that are going to be debuting in regards to the book in the coming months. I know I have a, a cool video that's going to be showing up on a website pretty soon. So keep your eye on that. I mean, one of the things from Mark's review is like he he wished that there were more pictures in the book, and a lot of that was just logistic. It's like we had a wealth of material but like it it was about a keeping the length to a certain length and it was also about like you know there were certain things that we just weren't sure we could clear my precious fate take your brother to arrakis and destroy the atreides hey guys sorry i got sidetracked uh please follow me on social media if you like Estelle, max it was a pleasure meeting you and i'm joseph to everyone that's going to new york gets to meet you and possibly win a sandworm. Uh, well, it's uh, great to be back on Dune Talk, talking Lynch's Dune for a change. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. Uh, Max, it's been a pleasure to talk to you once again. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the book and uh, looking forward to seeing your future work. Yeah, same, buddy. Yeah, and and and, and Mark uh, um, made a few contributions to the book as well. Like, he helped me with, um, there's a whole section about comparing to the book to the movie and uh, we worked on that together and that was a lot of fun i think i think one of the reviews actually singled it out as being one of their favorite sections so thank okay. you for that i was re really uh, i thought it was that. the worst section myself you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and in case you didn't hear before I, I will be at forbidden planet in new york on september 16th from 5 to 7 p.m and i will be giving away my sandworm toy so Please come to that if you are if you are in or near New York. I would love to meet you. I would love to sign your book. Uh, you can get the book there ahead of its release on September nineteenth.
Great. Th thanks. Uh, thanks again, Max. Uh, so, so great to have you on the, on the show. And uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've learned a couple of uh, really cool things uh, out, out of this episode and, and the book itself. So this was uh, Marcus Gabriel, your editor at donewsnet.com. And you can find me writing at donewsnet and on uh, uh, Twitter and Instagram at um, Marcus's writing. And uh, yeah, let, let us let us know. We're going to have a couple more interviews in the, in the coming months. So who would you like to see on uh, future episodes of Dune Talk? For now, take care. We hope you've enjoyed Dune Talk. Remember to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you know when the next episode drops. Stay tuned to dunenewsnet.com and add us to your social feeds. Be the first to hear breaking news and reviews.